Hello and welcome to Cooking the Books with me, Julie Smith, the podcast which takes us just a little deeper behind the pages of the best of the food books. This week I'm with scientist and Guardian food writer Nick Sharma, whose flavour equation is about the emotion, sight, sound, mouthfeel, aroma and taste of food, which adds up to the only way to eat. It's kind of like kitchen tips and tricks where your grandmother tells you to do something, but except this is in science. But Nick is also a fantastic food photographer, a finalist for a James Beard Award, no less. I asked him, as a rubbish Instagram photographer, for a few tips. Give food the spotlight. One of the reasons why I left a career in science and moved to food was because I enjoyed the process of making something, not only the final dish. Give those moments... Simple as they are sometimes, like squeezing a lemon or getting the zest off a lemon, give them the spotlight because that's ultimately what drew me into food is the way you build something or create something. And so a lot of my work actually focuses on the actions or the simplicity of the steps that take place before a dish comes together. Of course, there's always the beauty shot. Um, and then when it comes to hero images, again, it's the same. I go with the same attitude where I'm trying to treat either the action or the dish or the ingredient as a ballerina on stage. You know, like the single spotlight that falls on her when she's dancing on stage. That's kind of the attitude that I take where everything else surrounding it is basically noise and falls back in the background. So that's that's kind of like where I come from. What a beautiful image. I mean, you know, classic photography has been about depth of field. Sure. And now with even with our iPhones, we can use the portrait shot to pull focus to, to, to create that spotlight effect. Is that the same sort of idea? It definitely is. I t- with better lighting. Yeah, well, that's true. I think one of the things as photographers you're taught is to capture someone's attention, especially with media. You have to capture people's attention a couple of seconds, otherwise you lose it. And so that's where the photography comes in. So I try to play with light quite a bit. In fact, if you look at a lot of my photos, I don't use a lot of light. I tend to cut a lot of it out, which is where kind of the ballerina, uh, you know, the parallel comes from. Because I find that to be quite noisy sometimes. It distracts from what's happening. And sometimes it doesn't. So I think kind of understanding how to play with light has been something that I've tried to really work on and still keep the focus on the dish while still trying to create an image that is aesthetically pleasing, uh, both for me as a food photographer, but also artistically. Yeah. I mean, Observer Food Monthly called your work painterly with Caravaggio lighting. Oh, did they? Um, I don't remember. They did. But then on an, on the other hand, didn't you get fired from one job because your food photography didn't make the food look like food? Well, I didn't get fired. I actually ended up quitting. I got <laughs> reprimanded. I, I did get reprimanded by my boss. So I was working at a startup where I was hired as the food photographer. The startup was a company based in San Francisco and they delivered food to uh, the chefs created food. I was responsible for photographing them and putting them on the app. People would buy it. The problem what happened because I was also styling was it was never meeting customer expectations. So whatever food was delivered to the customers never looked like what it was in the app. Now that's actually not my fault because I'm doing my job properly. It's the chefs or the you know the packaging team's responsibility to meet that demand. And so I used to get reprimanded a lot. And I remember for me the final straw was when I got pulled in and they told me that this looks too nice and you know people don't get that so they get upset and we get these comments from them that it doesn't look like what's being sold now that's actually (laughs) not my problem and so that was quite demoralizing and I remember joining the company early on and in my interview they said they wanted to win a James Beard photography for their work and 
James Beard doesn't give awards for food apps, but still, it was kind of. I think that should have been my red sign, red flag right there. And then you went on to to become a wonderful food photographer and a food writer. More importantly, let's take us through that journey. Let, I want to go back to the Arabian Sea in Bombay, as it was. Okay. Where you grew up. Your mother was a Catholic from Goa, and your father was a Hindu vegetarian from Uttar Pradesh. Mm-hmm. And Bombay is where you kind of simmered all the flavours of you and your interesting family to become this this child who was really, really interested in process and chemistry. Where did that come from? I was fascinated by changes in colour. And I think that's what drew me early on into science. Uh, my first taste for science came in high school when, you know, they were talking about acids and bases and all these kind of things. And then you learn that simple ingredients at home change colour. So turmeric changes colour, it turns red. Uh, it goes from yellow to red when you mix it with something that's alkaline like soap. And for me, that was something fascinating because here was so- something that sits in our kitchen and it has this whole different life, almost like a secret life that I never knew about. Um, and so I found a lot of these things really fascinating. And then also just the biology of things where you grow things from seeds or watch an egg crack and form a, you know, I mean, you know, hatch to a chicken. I think all of these things were really fascinating. And I think the fact that life and science kind of flow together and that was also happening in the kitchen which was what drew me to science yeah so biochemistry became your thing and that's what you were doing in india as a student before you came to america and you went to cincinnati first were you still a scientist then or had you already started thinking about doing stuff with food so i had given food the career in food an initial um I toyed the idea a little bit when I was in India and I wanted to go to culinary school, but my mother said no because she said, I don't think you have the capacity or the patience to sit in a cold room and peel onions. She's seen a lot of uh, culinary students at the hotel that she worked at being put through that thing. So it was kind of not forbidden, but definitely put down. And so when I came to America, I came to study molecular genetics and I was at the College of Medicine in Cincinnati studying genetics. Um, I was in a doctorate program and that's when I started to cook for myself a lot because I was left on my own. And but it's also a time for me to explore what was available around me. And having never really traveled the world at that point in my life, eating out at restaurants kind of became that passport. Um, and mm. so, you know, Cincinnati being a small, even though it's a, it's a, it's a small city, but a large city for the Midwest. Uh, there was still a lot of restaurants that from Europe. So you have the Greek immigrants, you've got the Italian immigrants. And so you can taste those flavors and learn more about them. And then I actually ended up leaving my program um, after passing my qualifying degree, uh, my qualifying exam, because I was just done with science at that point and I needed a break. And I ended up moving to Georgetown in Washington, D.C., where I was working again at the Department of Medicine doing research. That's where I actually went back to food. And I did that by writing a food blog called A Brown Table. And that's where people found you. They saw your amazing photography as well. They saw your story, the way that you were writing about food. The explosion of experiences that you must have had in America must have kind of taken you almost to the point of the flavor equation i mean i know that was Mm -hmm, many years later but it it is about the process isn't it when you're in the flavor equation you're talking about sight and sound and Mm mouthfeel and aroma and emotion and just for you personally as a young man leaving home and coming to the to america and how aware were you of that panoply of 
experiences to play with and how they had to do with food? That's a really good question. I think it was definitely an evolution, a personal evolution for me over years. Um, you know, one of the things that had happened, I had left India and come to America. And like you said, I was also experiencing a new country, kind of learning what uh, was available around me, you know, tasting new things, smelling new things, also just seeing how people behave so different, even towards food. And that was something that I started to notice quite uh, that was quite different because another thing about me that I don't talk a lot about was for the first 12 years of my life in America, I never went back to India. And so I ended up having to do this comparison between my life here and my life that had happened before, uh, which led to this kind of, I guess, self-analysis on behavior as well as food. Um, the other thing that happened was it was at Georgetown that I started to pay more attention to the science of these things because at Georgetown, I was studying uh, metabolic disorders and I was working on research that studied um, diabetes, obesity, hypertension, as well as osteoporosis and um, sodium diets in people. And so my entire, re before I was studying cancer and herpes virus, I'd gone from virology and, and viruses, and I had suddenly moved into this field of more human metabolic disorders. And when you're doing that, you are, uh, we're also doing uh, people work. And so then you start to yeah. see how people behave towards food in a measurable way versus just reading something. And that changed things for me. It was there that I decided to go back to school and study public policy. Really what was missing in my career was tying the science to people. Yeah. And policy kind of built that. And one of the things we would learn in policy was, oh, if you change the price of alcohol or sugar, you, you know, put a tax on it, people start responding differently. Uh, you know, then understanding the socioeconomics of race and, uh, you know, how diseases affect people and, you know, the food that they have access to. All of these things started to play into the food that I was buying and I started to pay more attention to those things. So I think a lot of these things actually helped me pay attention to not only what was happening in the kitchen, but also outside just from a more global mm perspective i mean that's absolutely fascinating because you know we I, I work with uh, the food foundation we're constantly looking at food poverty and uh, the food culture in britain you know the fifth richest country in the world and yet we have lots and lots and lots of people still living in food poverty we're always trying to address that issue of how to change the food culture obviously you've got to get the socioeconomics right in the first place but mm -hmm. also how do you get them to eat it because it is much more than just being afford whether you can afford it or not it is about the experience experience of junk food. I mean, mm -hmm. when you were working in policy, when you were t dealing with the end of that, the diabetes, you know, if you eat lots of uh, certain foods with high salt and, and sugar and fat, mm -hmm. you have an increased risk of, of, of diabetes. Uh, mm -hmm. diet-related diseases are Absolutely. killers. A lot of it comes from junk food. Did you ever get to grips with what is the answer to that? I think one of the things is there is definitely... Um, and this is, I think, where the culture comes in so much, is that it depends on what you were exposed to growing up. Like, I think we should all definitely eat more vegetables. Uh, but I think the way we talk about vegetables right now, the fact that it has to be sold as something cool is actually very disappointing and sad. 
why can't it just be something as is? Now, I grew up in India. It's, you know, vegetables are probably three-fourths of someone's meal. Even if you're putting meat, you add a lot of vegetables to it. You know, even when I develop recipes, sometimes editors will say, you know, add some protein here. And in India, I've never actually even read, read this in an Indian cookbook, which will say, you know, add some protein here. And I think the first of all, kind of stripping away uh, what ingredients are in cooking by making them macromolecules and saying, you know, eat your proteins, eat your carbohydrates. That, again, kind of takes away from the selling factor. It's really unpalatable, isn't it? Right. And this is as someone coming who's a biochemist. I'm all about macromolecules and stuff. <laughs> but I think it's the problem with the way food has been marketed in many countries and the concept that vegetables are side components to a dish. You know, yeah. because vegetables are quite beautiful. They've got different textures, different colors. So I think that's where um, that's kind of always been my focus. I actually stay away from a lot of these topics. And I think yeah. when we just strip it down to uh, some of just like these macromolecules, it's just so sad <laughs> to read about it. I know. But having said that, and we'll go into your flavor equation, you do strip it down. You strip mm -hmm. it down into emotion, sight, sound, mouthfeel, aroma and taste. And that is your flavor equation. Mm -hmm. So you're breaking it down. But actually, you know, we know that that is that makes a beautiful equation. We, we eat with our eyes as much as we eat with our mouth. Um, tell me about that flavor equation. Why particularly? I mean, it's, you're not the first to do yeah. this by any means. Mm -hmm. but, but why for you did you come up with that particular equation? I mean, you're absolutely right that I'm not the first to come up with the equation because a lot of scientists have also spoken about this individually. Uh, and food writers. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that I learned early on in school when we were being taught in uh, biochemistry was how taste receptors work, the physiology. And one of the things that was done early on was to develop something called the taste equation, where they measure the brain's uh, electrochemical responses to different food substances. For me, that was the most fascinating thing. For one, you have this whole... Uh, this whole like food becomes a chemical signal, becomes an electric signal. And then that becomes a brainwave that, you know, is moving through your head and through your system. And then it influences how you taste food, but also your emotions. And for me, that has always been something really fascinating. And that's something that again came into play when I was at Georgetown because um, we were doing a lot of taste studies. And I found that to be really fascinating. The other thing was, um, I also worked at a pharmaceutical company for a while. And one of the things that we would do was learn how to make or try to make drugs more palatable. A lot of medicines are, are you know, um, allopathic medicines are uh, bitter to taste. And so, uh, you know, you have to apply the honey to it, so to speak. And so how do you do that? So, you know, understanding mechanisms of drug delivery, again, that makes something more palatable. And then that again, you know, comes back to taste. So, I found that to be really fascinating. And I've always want, based on, because of my background in science with these research studies, I've always wanted to write a book where I could talk about the science of flavor. Because flavor, when I started out as a food writer, has always been aroma and taste. And then uh, one of the things that all my editors insist on, when you write the head note to a recipe, talk about the emotions associated, if there's a story to it. Now, that was really funny because they would always talk about that. But when it came to writing a recipe, no one really spoke about the emotional connection that was building flavor or why. Yeah. It comes up, you know, 
in these head notes, but it doesn't really flow through the recipe. So that's something that I really wanted to explore while writing the book. Um, because, you know, as scientists also, and even the physicians are always told, you know, a patient that's uh, going to be aggressive or is not in the mood to take a drug will be quite difficult to administer the drug too. Yeah. So you have to keep them in a good mood. So these were something, you know, a lot of these, like, I guess it's kind of like kitchen tips and tricks where your grandmother tells you to do something, but yeah. except this is in science. Uh, so <laughs> I kind of wanted to bring all of that to the book because for me, there were so many parallels between science and food that I felt that perhaps a book could kind of explore that idea. And so when I started my research for the book, I said, let me break down um, the components into an equation and we'll we'll talk about taste, we'll talk about aroma, but then also bring in emotion and then talk about the textures of food, which is the mouthfeel, mm. um, also the sights and sounds. And for the sights and sounds, one thing that I did was I spoke to a lot of people that had lost their sense of vision or sound to mm. undis- or people who had... Um, gone through a disease like cancer. Um, and so um, Grant Ackett, who's the chef at Alenia, I reached out to him and he helped me because he's had uh, cancer and lost his sense of taste. Um, and so it was really interesting just talking to different people who were blind or uh, deaf or, you know, had lost their sense of um, any of these senses uh, to kind of understand how they worked with food. And it was really fascinating, you know, for a good example that I can give you is um, someone who was blind that I spoke to. He told me about how the sound of water for him was different when it was hot or cold when it dripped from the faucet. And yeah, and I said, that's something that I don't pay attention to. But scientifically, it makes sense that density of water changes with temperature. And the fact that you're able to perceive that is remarkable. And I think all of us probably would be able to do it if we had learned how to appreciate that sense more. That's fascinating. I remember um, doing a piece with Sybil Kapoor, who's a British writer, um, mm-hmm. and she wrote a book called Sight, Smell, Touch, Taste, Sound, and her husband is a neurologist. So that's quite okay. interesting. And I remember her talking about the sound of food being culturally specific. So the slurping mm-hmm. in uh, Chinese or Japanese cultures, for mm-hmm. example, is is to us it's quite off-putting but to mm-hmm. asians it's a sound of pleasure mm-hmm. um so it's it's there's so much loaded into it i'm really interested in the loss of senses so you're okay. talking about working with you know blind and deaf people but covid must have mm-hmm. your book came out before covid right. obviously but with so many people losing their sense of taste and smell have people been really reaching towards your book to to get some ideas about to super flavor to super sense their food uh to try and get some pleasure from food again yeah so one of the things that i've noticed from the people who've had covid and have come out reached out to me regarding the book um is finding out what came back first but one of the things that i've noticed is a lot of people and this happens in a lot of diseases too where people lose their sense of taste and it comes back Uh, i think the first thing that i should mention is that we actually never remember a taste we always remember aromas uh the brain uh, the oh, yes. brain uh, memorizes aroma. So if you're like craving a taste, you actually smell it, a phantom aroma. Uh, but uh, that's not really there. So it's quite, taste never actually comes back. I wanted to ask you about that, actually, because you do say in the book that aroma is airborne and mm-hmm. taste 
is from the saliva. So put the memory of that within the context of that. The brain has the capacity to memorize and file away different aromas. So for example, if you're at home and you're thinking about, say, something that you made with your mother or your grandmother or your favorite meal at a restaurant or even walking through a, a market, a food market, um, you're actually recollect recollecting a smell, not a taste. On the other hand, uh, taste is something that you experience at the moment, um, whereas aroma is something that you also experience at the moment, but you can also go back to it uh, using your mind. Yeah, which takes us to your uh, food moments because they are about your childhood, many of them. Uh, the mm -hmm. first one now, I presume this is a Portuguese uh, bun, Chirisa Pau. Growing up, I had actually eaten this quite a bit in India, and then I forgot about it. It's one of those things, having not gone back to India for so long, I hadn't eaten it in a while. And then a couple of years ago, we were in New Zealand visiting my family. Uh, my mother's family lives in New Zealand, so we had gone there. And then an aunt decided to make it for breakfast. And it brought back all these memories of Goan sausage is, is from the Portuguese. It's called chorizo or choris. And um, what they do is, uh, I mean, it's pig-based. And so they have the meat that's, you know, seasoned and sun-dried and everything. It's quite spicy and quite delicious. And it's used as a fav flavoring agent. So you'll cut a sausage up, put it in rice, or uh, cook it with a dish. And one of, the other, one of the dishes that's made is this bun. And it's just a very simple uh, bun dough recipe. And then you put this cooked, sausage inside, fill it up and bake it. And my aunt had made this bun for breakfast one day. I said, I have completely forgotten about this dish. And this is where like the emotion came in. And I said, I need to put it in the book because again, not only this is a dish that I've forgotten, but it's also such a dish that's integral to going cuisine. And a lot of um, the Indian food that's written about in media is um, it's rarely focused on, you know, some of these smaller states. And so, you know, coming from that state, being a part of my heritage, I felt it was necessary for me to kind of put that in the book. And it's something that I love. And I only put dishes that I love in all my books or write about. And was it the aroma or was it the taste that took you back? I would say, I, I would definitely say emotion was a huge factor here. But when it comes to the taste, it was definitely the heat and the vinegar that's used to make these sausages that kind of brings it to me. Um, so, yeah, I think those are the two tastes there. Yeah. Your second food moment is about your mother um, serving the hazelnut flan. She, you say she often served chilled puddings during the hotter months of the year as a way to cool off. So, I mean, because there are so many recipes in this book and they are about so many different ways of enhancing an experience of a mm -hmm. dish. So why the hazelnut flan? First of all, uh, hazelnuts were something that I discovered in America. Um, and I fell in love with them in coffee. And I know a lot of people who drink coffee probably hate me for saying this, but I love adding hazelnut uh, flavored creamers to my coffee. Um, hazelnut is also just a flavor and an aroma that works so beautifully with anything that's bittersweet. Um, and then a flan has caramel in it. And so, you know, that combination is just, it's magic. And uh, growing up, India's really, Bombay's really hot. And one of the things my mother always said was you should eat like cold puddings or, you know, chill sweets during the hotter months of summer. So I, I still love flans. And so that's one of the reasons why it's in the book, because it brings that this memory of being in high school, coming home to a, you know, a chill sweet on a hot summer day and then you've got the hazelnuts in there. and is that the, the mouthfeel part of of the equation i would have said that 
You know, there are so many things. You were absolutely right about the mm-hmm. hazelnut. But but the mouthfeel of a caramel flan, the cold caramel flan. I mean, I can taste it now just in my, as we're talking about it. But your third food moment is, no, it's the no-churn Faluda ice cream, which and we'll mm-hmm. talk about Faluda in a minute. But actually, sure. you say that you saw it first in Nigella's How to Eat. I'm loving this idea of this mm-hmm. what young teenager in Bombay, uh, absolutely obsessed with biochemistry, reading Nigella. <laughs> what a wonderful <laughs> image. <laughs> oh, my gosh. She's the sweetest. So I asked if I could use the recipe, at least the foundations of the recipe for the book, because um, several years ago, I, so my father-in-law loves coffee ice creams. And Nigella had a recipe in one of her books just where she uses heavy cream and beats it up and then uses that as the foundation for the ice cream. And we made her coffee ice cream and he loved it. So ever since then, I've, you know, I think that's one of, I like recipes that are really easy. And Nigella delivers that. She delivers quality with ease. And I asked, I said, can I use your technique in the book? She said, absolutely, sure, go ahead. So she was so kind. I did it. And then the thing with Faluda is it's a drink that's so popular in India. So again, not like, like another summer drink yeah. where it's usually made with milk. You put um, basil seeds that are soaked in water. So they swell up. You've got those at the bottom. You've got these vermicelli noodles. And then it's a sweetened milk usually with rose syrup or um, pandan uh, leaves so, and then couscous or um, and then it's usually topped with ice cream and all these other things. I mean, you could go crazy. Yeah. So... I wanted to kind of recreate that entire feeling, but in an ice cream. So we have the same ingredients coming in, but it's an ice cream, but we're using Nigella's cream, heavy cream technique to build the ice cream. Yeah, absolutely. And then your last food moment is something completely different. It's Indo-Chinese chicken hacker noodles. Tell me a little bit how that sits with your flavor equation. So Indo-Chinese cuisine is its own thing within India. You really don't see a lot of it outside India or in Southeast Asian countries. Um, and so in, Indo- um, in the chicken hakka noodles, it's quite simple. You've got your egg noodles. You've got vegetables that are stir-fried. And then I use, I tell people, just use rotisserie chicken, you know. And then you, the flavors in it and what makes it quite special, and this is after tasting, I think, 12 different brands of the seasoning that come from different Indian companies that sell this, uh, the prepackaged stuff. Um, I found that they were using amchur, which is a, which is basically an unripe mango. They sun dry them, grind them to a fine powder, and it's a souring agent. It's really good with sweet and hot flavor. You've also got um, a little bit of heat, and I think it has cumin, if I remember correctly. Now, these are the kind of the core flavors that build a chicken hakka noodle. And um, again, I, for me, another thing with noodles is the silky texture of a lot of these egg noodles that I love. And you've got the crunchiness of the vegetables, the chewiness of the meat. So it all comes together. The book is an absolute must for anyone who loves a bit of chemistry. But then, you know, the photographs are so beautiful. Do you feel that you've done the chemistry now? I mean, where (laughs) will you go from here? Will it just be another take on the way that you present food or will be another aspect? Are you and the 12-year-old biochemist intrinsically linked or can you let that biochemist float off? That's quite fascinating. So <laughs> I say that um, I am I'm working on two new books right now. And I thought that I would walk away from the science after this book. And one of the really interesting things is with the with this, the flavor equation, a few people felt that there wasn't enough science in it. I think you're always going to get that no matter what you do, that it isn't enough 
food or enough science. I was really surprised by the enough science, but I did cut back quite a bit because I, I think it was 400 pages over my limit with this book. And so then I dropped a lot of stuff out. Um, but I think with the next two books, at least with the next book that I'm working on, you'll see you'll, there's definitely going to be some science because at the end of the day, I want people to walk away after they read a recipe of mine. Hopefully they cook the dish. But I also want them to understand why they're doing what they're doing and walk away with that core knowledge and apply it to their own cooking at home. So it makes the, the recipes that they've been cooking either better or easier to make. You know, if you can cut back four steps out of a seven part recipe, mm. it makes your life better. And so that's something that's going to, I think, going to happen throughout, I think, all the work that I do. Yeah. Um, I always tell a lot of editors, I'm, I'm tapped out of emotional stories at this point. I don't have <laughs> any more emotions to kind of pull through. But I think my... Uh, my strengths are where honestly where the science lies and the cult, you know, comparing cultures. And so that's, I think, something that's always going to be seen in any of my food writing because that's at the core of what informs my recipe development process. And so that's something even when I write for my column at The Guardian um, in the fee section, that's something that I don't really bring in too much, but it's definitely built into the core of my recipes. And it's who you are. You're interested in unpacking everything aren't you absolutely unpacking is the key to understanding every single element of what you're doing there's a lot of myth that goes around with food writing a lot of the comments of you know that i read are untested or they're not backed up by data and it doesn't have to be a scientific study but at least it should be backed up by some kind of thing versus just telling someone this is the way it should be but one of the things you're taught in science is that there is and I, a professor actually failed me on a test for this because I wrote the word belief. Uh, and she said, science is not faith. So you can't use the word belief in any of my classes. And that's something that has stayed on with me where you don't absolutely, you'll never get to the absolute truth. You shave away to get closer to it. And I think when people make confidence statements like this is it, it really bothers me from that. I think the science kicks in where it really bothers me because first of all, there are multiple ways to go about doing something. So there's no best recipe or whatever a perfect recipe. And then the second thing is that there are multiple ways to get a technique better. You know, another thing is everybody experiences things differently. And so again, it's important to appreciate that when you write recipes. Um, and so I try to come with that attitude where everything is flexible to make it better. Thanks for listening. You can buy all the books featured on Cooking the Books by clicking the bookshop tab at juliesmith.com and do sign up for my newsletter to keep up with all my news, including the latest list of the sub clubs. And don't forget to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. And I will see you next week when I'm talking to New Zealand writer and modern preserver, Kylie Newton.